Well, good morning, uh, Christ Central Church. As Glenn said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I realize there are a number of you that I have yet to meet, especially those of you who started attending uh, while I was away this summer. Uh, I would love to meet you, to get to know you. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. I look forward to connecting with you more. This morning, uh, we're going to be concluding our signpost sermon series, a series in which we've been looking at these signposts that God has placed in the world, uh, signposts that help us to make sense of and give us hope in this broken world. The past few weeks, we've looked at the signposts of love, beauty, spirituality, and power. And this morning, we will look at our final signpost, the signpost of justice. Like in the past, we're going to be pulling from John's gospel, looking at a text where Jesus shines his light on this signpost of justice. And so I'm asking you if you're able to stand as we read together God's word. We're in John chapter 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and washed his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And we're going to skip over to verse 30. Jesus has now come. It says, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word. Lord, give me the courage to get out of the way so that you can speak to our hearts, that we might encounter you this day and be transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite movies of all time is A Few Good Men. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, shame on you. You should watch it this afternoon. It's a story of a Navy lawyer, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, uh, who is seeking to get justice for two low-ranking Marines who've been charged with murder. And the only thing standing in the way of the justice of these individuals is a decorated war hero named Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson. And I get goosebumps thinking about that final scene where Lieutenant Caffey demands the truth from Colonel Jessup, and Colonel Jessup responds, you can't handle the truth. That was my best shot at Jack Nicholson. But in the famous speech that follows, Colonel Jessup declares how their traditional rules of right and wrong just don't apply to him. That his job is to do what he thinks is right, regardless of what some snot-nosed lawyer thinks. But as it turns out, Colonel Jessup was wrong. The rules of right and wrong did in fact apply to him. The movie ends with Colonel Jessup being taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs, being held accountable for his wrongdoing. And we love movies like this, don't we? Because we love it when the bad guy finally gets what he deserves in the end, where justice is served. And the reason we love movies like this is because we deep down long for the world to be like that, to be a place where the bad guy always gets it in the end, where justice is served. But the truth is that's not the world that we live in. Deep down, we know that the world is not as it should be. Two weeks ago, Adnan Syed, the star of the podcast Serial, was finally re released from prison after serving 23 years for a crime that he did not commit. The world is not as it should be. Last week, the Russian military, clearly frustrated by the lack of progress in their attempt to take over Ukraine, once again pointed their missiles at civilians rather than armed forces, recklessly taking more innocent lives. The world is not as it should be. A little closer to home, for, for me at least, two years ago, my, two, two years ago, two weeks ago, my youngest daughter was in the pediatric ICU. And by God's grace, she had a miraculous recovery and my daughter came home. But while I was at the hospital, I just so happened to walk past another couple with eyes full of tears, pushing an empty stroller out of the hospital. Why was it that my child came home and theirs didn't? The world is not as it should be. Maybe the hardest of all to name is the injustice that exists not around us, but inside of us. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 7, 
For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. As much as we hate to admit it, it's often those things that we do not want to do that are the source of pain and harm for others. The truth that we can't handle is that we're not just recipients of injustice, but we're creators of it also. The world is not as it should be. Now, I realize you might be thinking, isn't the subtitle of this series, Hope in a Broken World? And yet, the signpost of justice seems to be pointing not to hope, but to hopelessness. Because it seems if we follow this sign, so often justice is nowhere to be found. And yet, as I've looked at the scriptures and and what God is revealing to us in his word and in this world, I've come to realize that I think I was reading the sign wrong. You see, it's not the presence of justice, but rather our passion for justice that helps us to make sense of the world. It's not the fact that justice readily exists in this world, but rather that you and I so desperately long for justice that should give us hope. It's that passion for justice I want to look at this morning. Three questions I want to answer around this passion for justice. First, what is a passion for justice? Second, where does it come from? And then lastly, what do we do with it? What is a passion for justice? Where does it come from? And what do we do with it? Some people describe me as a passionate person. I think that's fair. I'm very passionate about certain things. Alabama football, it's a rough day yesterday. Passionate about, easy. <laughs> who, who did that? Man. Uh, good food, I'm passionate about good food. I'm passionate about winning. I'm passionate about two-ply toilet paper. And I'm passionate about Jesus Christ. So those are things that I'm passionate about. But what does it mean to be passionate about something? Author, counselor Chip Dodd defines passion as the willingness to be in pain for something that matters more than the pain. I think that's really helpful. It helps us to differentiate the difference between affinity and passion. I have an affinity for flowers. I think they're pretty. But I'm not willing to be in pain for a flower. On the other hand, as some of our staff can attest to, for the purpose of winning, I am willing to be in much pain. I actually came home from our staff retreat with a sore shoulder because of how many times I tried to get the best score in the Papa Shot arcade game. I wish I was making that up. We all are passionate about things. However, a passion for justice is no ordinary passion. If justice is defined as the world being as it should be, then a passion for justice is a willingness to be in pain in order to put the world back to right. As you might have guessed, there's no better example of one who embodies a passion for justice than Jesus. I want you to look again with me at our text, starting at verse 3. A little context here. Lazarus and his sisters were close with Jesus. The text describes Lazarus as one whom Jesus loved. This one whom Jesus loved is sick, really sick. And so Jesus comes to Bethany to be with his friend, but he's too late. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus is already dead. And when he arrives, Lazarus' sister Mary, she she comes running out to meet him, and and she's crying uncontrollably. 
And I want you to pay close attention to how Jesus responds to Mary in this moment. This is huge. Text says, verse 33, that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the English translation here is softened up a good bit. The Greek word that is translated deeply moved is really better translated as angry. He became angry. As one commentator says, Jesus snorted with indignation. What the text is saying, that the, that the hurt that Mary, Mary was feeling, it motivated in Jesus a sense of, of deep anger, indignation, in the best possible sense of those words. Jesus was undone by Mary's tears. Now, what's interesting is that instead of doing something or saying something in this moment, verse 35 says that Jesus instead simply joined Mary in her sorrow. He wept. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in all of Scripture, but loaded with significance. Jesus saw in the eyes of his friend Mary that the world was not as it should be, and it moved Jesus to tears. That is what a passion for justice is. It is to see and to grieve the ways in which this world is not as it should be. Which brings us to our first point of application this morning. Church, we need to open our eyes. Which flies against our Western individualistic tendencies to come home from work, pull down the garage, shut the doors, turn off the lights, and close ourselves off to the world around us. Yet the invitation here is to open our doors, to look around to open our eyes to the manifold ways in which this world is not as it should be, the ways that sin is wreaking havoc in us, in our city, and around the world. But not just to see it, but allow it to undo us and even make us angry. When I walked by that couple with the empty stroller in the hospital, so much of me wanted to look away to stuff those feelings down and pretend like I didn't see what I had just seen. But by God's grace in that moment, I didn't. Instead, I got on the elevator and I cried. I cried hard. And then I got up to the hospital room where my precious five-year-old daughter was laying in the bed asleep. And I told my wife about the empty stroller and we cried together. Church, if we're going to be people who are passionate for justice, we must be willing to open our eyes and to, like Jesus, allow the injustice of this world to move in our spirits and greatly trouble us, to fill us with a passion for what this world should be. Now, when we do that, when we open our eyes to the world and allow its injustice to move us, it brings up a very interesting question. Why does injustice make us angry in the first place? Or maybe better stated, where does this passion for justice that is inside of us come from? I have a dear friend from high school with whom I've talked much about issues of justice. The friend is atheist, and because of that, he and I see the world differently. But there's one thing that we wholeheartedly agree on, and that is that the world is not as it should be. We share a passion for justice. And yet, although we have this common passion, we disagree about where that passion comes from. 
My friend argues that this passion for justice simply exists inside of him, that he knows in his gut that things aren't as they should be and is motivated from within to do something about it. And I think my friend is on to something, but he doesn't have the full story. See, because the Bible teaches that our passion for justice finds its genesis in the book of Genesis. You like how I did that? That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been in the pulpit in a while. I'm sorry. I have to soak in the moments, the good ones. That was a good one. Um, we plainly see in the book of Genesis that this world is our father's world. He created it. And he wasn't being prideful, but rather truthful when he said that his creation was very good. The world that God created was perfectly as it should be. But sin messed everything up. It was sin that gave birth to injustice and created a world that is not as it should be. But rather than admit defeat and give up on his creation, God doubled down on this world and on you and me, and he made a covenant. He made a promise to set the world back to rights, to create a world where Jeremiah 31, his law would be written on people's hearts and where injustice would be, injustice would be, nowhere, be nowhere to be found. A promise that when fulfilled will look like Revelation 21, verse 4, where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. So you see, what, what the scriptures make plain is that justice is God's plan from the beginning. And although sin has gotten in the way of that plan, God has resolved that justice will once again rule the day in the end. And we see that resolve on display in our text, don't we? Jesus wept. Church, don't miss that this is not an ordinary man who is crying over the pains and the suffering of the world. Jesus, being fully God, wept. In no other religion do we see such care and compassion from the divine towards its creation. Our God weeps over the pain and suffering in this world. He's undone by how this world is not as it should be. And that, my friends, helps explain why all humanity, not just Christians, long for justice because we are created in his image, meaning that God created us to reflect his character, to resemble him in terms of what we love and what we hate. And that, in my opinion, is the only logical explanation for why I can walk by two complete strangers who are experiencing great loss and be moved to tears because the image of God inside of me reminded me in that moment that those parents are image bearers too. And therefore, they have immeasurable dignity and worth, and so their grief matters to me also. And this is why the signposts of justice should fill us with hope. Because although injustice is all around us, we see how God has placed a passion for justice inside each and every one of us, which should cause us to hope and to pray that justice will win in the end. Now, I think there's an important point of application here that I would be remiss if I did not share. And that is if God is the source of our passion for justice, that we must allow his word to guide and direct our passion. Meaning that our passion for justice must be a biblical thing and not a political thing. 
An amen would be good right there. I'm going to say that again. The source of our passion for justice is God. Therefore, our passion for justice must be a biblical thing, not a political thing. Did you know that the Bible is neither liberal nor conservative? It actually offends both parties, and it necessarily should. And with Election Day coming, this makes voting very difficult, doesn't it? Because God's justice refuses to fit neatly inside party lines, which is why we must allow God's word and not Fox News or CNN to be our guide. And I'm not saying that's easy, but because justice always has been and will be a God thing, we still must do our best to allow him to instruct us on what true justice is, to instruct us on how the world should be. Which brings us to our third and final question for the day. So what then do we do with this passion for justice that God has knit inside all of us? And in order to answer that question, we must look first to our guide and see what God does with his passion for justice that is inside of him. Look again at our text starting in verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Don't miss this, church. It's not the tomb of Lazarus that Jesus was moved to come to. Lazarus' tomb was just a pit stop on the way to a far greater tomb. What a beautiful picture of passion, what it looks like to be in pain for something that matters more than the pain. It's God's passion for justice that motivated him to send his one, his only son to die. It was Jesus' passion for justice that motivated him to bear that cross for us to the end. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he dealt a decisive blow to the injustice in this world, and he inaugurated his new creation a world in which injustice does not get the final word, but where justice is beginning to spring forth, to burst out, and to fill the earth. And yet, shockingly, I think for most of us, Jesus doesn't finish the job, does he? He inaugurates the new creation on the cross in his, re in his resurrection, but injustice still exists all around us. The world is still not as it should be. So what gives? I want to draw your attention now to the final verse in our text. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, called him out of the tomb, and yet one problem remains. The grave clothes are still on him. He's set free from the sting of death, but the remnants of death are still on him. Although Christ has fully accomplished the miraculous work of salvation, Lazarus still experiences bondage that he must be set free from. Church, is that not the world that we live in? Christ has won the decisive victory over sin and death. He has inaugurated his new creation, yet we still live in bondage. We still feel the chains. And what Jesus does here is fascinating. It's amazing. He could have snapped his fingers grave clothes fall off. It would have been pretty dramatic, pretty awesome. The crowd would have clapped. But that's not what he does. He calls out to the brothers and sisters who have gathered there 
the brothers and sisters who had witnessed the miraculous works of Jesus and who now believe that he is in fact the son of God and he asked those people to unbind this man to set him free. Which brings us to our final point of application for the day. That is, although Jesus has done the heavy lifting when it comes to bringing justice, he has commissioned you and me, his church, to carry on his work as justice bringers in this broken world. I want to conclude with a story about this kind of passion at work. Years ago, members of this church discovered that there was a department of our city government that had a special agenda for a few neighborhoods in and around downtown Durham. The agenda was to transform these neighborhoods from low-income neighborhoods to middle-class neighborhoods. And one of the ways they sought to achieve this goal was to very strictly and rigidly enforce building codes in these neighborhoods. The officials would come in, they would inform the homeowner of the ways in which their house was not up to code, and then the homeowner would be required to make the repairs or would be fined if they couldn't do so with the hopes that the fines would motivate these homeowners to leave. The world is not as it should be. Some people in this church found out what was happening and went to speak with some members of this department. And in doing so, they found a mole. An employee in the department who loves Jesus and agreed that what the city was doing was unjust. And so together, the church official, the church and this government official came up with an angry plan. As soon as the official caught wind of a homeowner being targeted, he would share that name with the church and the church would go to the homeowner and offer to bring their house up to code for free. Pretty cool, huh? That was the genesis of the repair ministry here at Christ Central. Some angry people refusing to sit back and watch injustice happen, but instead choosing to get involved and follow in Christ's footsteps by being a justice bringer. Christ Central, what justice issues are you passionate about? What brokenness so undoes you infuriates you that you are willing to be in pain for that thing that matters more than the pain? What is the next justice ministry of Christ central that we birthed out of your anger? Church, I want to give you permission to allow your passion for justice to run wild. We would love to fan that flame. We would love to get behind you as we seek to bring heaven to earth in this place. Would you do that with us? John's gospel ends with a commissioning. Upon his departure, Jesus leaves his disciples, you and me, with a task to be completed. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Church, God, just as God has sent his son into this world to bring justice in his name, so Christ has sent us into this world to bring justice in Christ's name to be new creation people, justice people who are willing to be in pain for something that matters more than the pain, to be hope-giving people in a broken and unjust world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that right now in this room that you are stirring up anger in us that the things that we have seen in this world that are not okay, 
that are evidence that this world is not as it should be, that they would grieve us, move us to tears, and motivate us to action. That we would feel empowered by the greatest justice bringer of all, Jesus Christ, to go and to love and to serve and to give and to be in pain for something that matters more than the pain. Would you do that in us and through this church? In Jesus' name, amen.